Welcome y bienvenidos to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. Friends, this is going to be a really empowering episode, but I do want to give you a trigger warning. We do talk about child sexual abuse, and uh, I want to remind you, as I always do, that your mental health and mental wellness is the most important thing. So if you find that you are triggered or feel uncomfortable um, and are not able to continue listening, please uh, put it down, pause it, and come back to it when you are able to. I hope that you do come back to it because the information that we share today is really powerful, really important, and really critical to helping you keep your family safe. So who I have for today, and I'm really excited to um, have this person who I have always seen um, as one of the leaders in the abuse prevention space who has been working in this for a very long time um, to share the platform with me today and help give you some of that wisdom and experience um, that comes with working in this field for so long so that you can empower your family and you can um, take back that power. I think a lot of times as survivors, we tend to um, feel like we are powerless, that what happened to us defines aspects of our lives and we fear what opening up those uh, aspects may mean. But I want to challenge you. I want you to think about the fact that when you educate yourself and educate your children, you are taking that power back and it can be so tremendously healing. So I want to encourage you to listen with an open mind and an open heart um, but if you do need to take a break, that's totally normal and totally okay. Uh, but please try to come back to it when you can so that you are uh, learning and being able to take action. So let me introduce this week's guest. Feather Burkauer um, is a founder of Parenting Safe Children and is a licensed clinical social worker and holds a master's of social welfare from the University of California, Berkeley. Feather is one of the nation's leading experts in child sexual assault prevention. She has dedicated her career, which now spans over three decades, to educating parents and youth professionals on how to make their communities off limits to child sexual assault. Using her community-based approach, she has trained over 150,000 school children, parents, and youth professionals across the United States. Feather presents her well-regarded workshop, Parenting Safe Children in Schools, Youth Organizations, Parenting Groups, and Businesses Nationwide. Now Feather offers her workshops via live Zoom so that people around the world can participate. Feather has also co-authored Off Limits, A Parent's Guide to Keeping Children Safe from Sexual Abuse, a parenting book that will change the way you think about keeping children safe. She also authored conversation starter cards that accompany Off Limits to help parents get conversations started about body safety with caregivers. They are also both available on her website, parentingsafechildren.com, which will also be in the show notes. Feather makes a difficult and sensitive topic less scary and consistently impresses audiences with her knowledge, commitment, and warmth. And Feather is also available for private consultation at an hourly rate. So you can check out all the links to connect with her if you're interested in doing that. And you likely will after you listen to this week's uh, episode, which is full of amazing information. So without further ado, here is my interview with Feather Burkauer. Feather, I am just so delighted to have you on with me today. Thank you for making the time to join. Um, I have so many things to, to ask you about. So I'm really excited. So thank you for being here. And likewise, I'm, I've been following you for a while and I'm super excited to talk about this mission. It seems like we really share. So thanks. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's what, um, you know, we, we're both 
see ourselves in this space as um, passionate about this cause. And you've been doing this for much longer than I have. So I, I look to you as a, a beacon of light and a, and a mentor in a way, um, because, you know, you have seen how this has evolved over time. And, uh, you know, so I just, I really value your experience and what you bring to the table in these conversations. Thank so you. can you share, um, can you share with me, like, what your motivation was to get into this field so many years ago? And, you know, since you've been doing this for decades now, like, what was your why back then? And what's your why now? Has it, has it changed? Has it? Yeah. Sure. And that just means I'm so much older than you. So we'll just put that one over <laughs> Which is fine. I'm accepting it. So let's see. I started doing prevention education in the mid 80s. And I was studying at San Francisco State University, um, getting my BA in women's studies. And I had no idea what I was going to do with that. It was just the degree that I chose. And to graduate in my senior year, I needed to do an internship. And we were required to do that. And I had no idea what kind of work I wanted to do. I just knew somewhere in my heart that I wanted to work with kids. And simultaneous to that, I was at home one evening with my roommate and TV was on in the background and a movie came on television called Something About Amelia. And I don't know if you've ever seen that or if your listeners have, but it's a 90 minute made for TV movie with Ted Danskin. And it's about a 10 year old girl who was being sexually assaulted by her father. And I knew very little about this crime. I didn't know of people that I knew that I knew that were sexually assaulted or at least I didn't know they were being. I didn't know kids who were going through this. I didn't, I didn't know much about it at all. And I was riveted. Mm -hmm. I was glued to the television. And at the end of the show, I turned to my roommate and I said, that is my life work. Hmm. I'm gonna be a social worker. I wanna work with this crime. And I, I don't really know how to describe why, except I deeply understood the dynamics, the, the betrayal, the lies, the secrets. There was something about the way they presented it that just touched me deeply. And after that movie, I needed to find this internship. So I started to research what I could do. And I was looking for child sexual assault uh, treatment programs because I didn't even know pre prevention existed. And mm -hmm. through that search, I came across a program in Berkeley where I lived called Child Assault Prevention Project, which was a school-based program going into the schools, teaching children about strangers, about known people who sexually touch them and about bullies. Hmm. And I did my internship there with a rigorous training in sex abuse um, and continued to work with them for four years after my internship when I left the program and when I got my master's in social work. And I've been doing this work ever since. So my beginnings were working with kids and I don't work with children anymore. I've had a definite transition in my, my beliefs and my passion about teaching prevention with adults Mm -hmm. versus with kids. It all needs to be done. Children need those protection skills. There's plenty of people working with children. Um, but my passion is focusing on the responsibility that adults have to protect kids from sex abuse. And I know we share that, that ultimately we are the ones responsible to do this. A child should not have to live in the world thinking about this. Yeah. And yet they still need information, which I teach in my workshops, you teach, and which kids need. So yeah. that's kind of my, my story of how I got, got into doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's uh, what's fascinating too is how little the information was available back then. I think that's part of what I've seen, um, you know, over time. Do you, do you see the same? Like, is it, do you feel like it's finally a conversation that is starting to be? more out in the open because I mean it was su it's such a taboo topic still but I think it's less than it used to be and I don't know if that's just my own perception or if that's what you've seen as you know working in the field I, th I think Rosalia both are true hmm. back then we were serving hundreds of thousands of children a year in prevention programs in the state of California it was mandated that kids got prevention education at school so we were 
talking about it, but there has been a definite shift. And maybe it's because, you know, I'm so immersed in it and you're so immersed in it the way we are. And Instagram is a whole different world. I'm new to it. Um, but I, I think there's a level with the internet, with, with online issues that people are waking up with mm -hmm. the Me Too movement, with just how much we hear about sex abuse, we're waking up. And as you know, there's still so much denial. I mean, I have parents daily say, I don't want to learn this. I don't want to be paranoid. I don't want to scare my children. I don't want to break their innocence. And, and then there's other parents, as you know, also that are hungry for this. They want to teach it. They just don't know how, and yeah. they don't know the language. And so that's what we're here to help them do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know that, um, you know, we both talk about um, educating parents on what signs to look for when it comes to grooming. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is that, you know, continues to be a misconception is that it is going to be the stranger, right? We're always talking about how actually it's, that's not true. Um, it's more likely someone that you know, that your child knows. Um, and in teaching about grooming, which I think is a, frankly, a weird term to use. I understand it, but I, uh -huh. I almost wish there was a different term that we could use that parents would like identify what we're talking about. Cause it's, it's this entirely new education process for them to understand what grooming means. Um, you're doing, you know, currently you're doing a workshop on that. I know that um, this particular workshop is for parents who have children that have been abused so that they understand um, like how, you know, I think a lot of parents, when something like that happens, they, there's a lot of self-blame and, and guilt about what they, how, how did they not see that coming? Um, so I know that you're doing that workshop to, to talk about that, but in general, I know that you talk about grooming and to teach parents about that. Can you explain why it's so critical for parents to learn the signs, um, and what, what signs they could look for? You know, I think yeah. that there's this, this, this fear of saying like, you know, my kids are with people that I know and trust. And so they just won't even look for the signs, right? They won't even, it's almost a fear of like wa not wanting to spot it because then they would have to like come to terms with the fact that someone that they is a family member that they love and care about could do something so horrible. So um, can you explain, first of all, what grooming is for those who don't know? And then also, why is it so critical for them, for parents to learn those signs? Yeah. So I'm so glad we're talking about grooming because it is really key in prevention. It is key in prevention because if we adults can understand what these signs are and truly be willing to see them and understand what's happening in front of us, then we can speak up, we can intervene and we can potentially stop an, an assault. Okay, yeah. so I think the best way to describe it for people who might not know about it is that grooming First of all, grooming behaviors, which I'll just mention some, are the behaviors that typically precede touch, right? So not every child is groomed. A kid can be dropped off the first time at a babysitter or, you know, at a family member and be sexually assaulted on the spot impulsively. But more often than not, there's this process of friendship building to gain trust. And yeah. that's the great news, because if we truly are willing to learn this, we can see it, we can intervene. And so it's this process of friendship building that an older youth or an adult will take a child through in order to gain trust, um, break suspicions, get close to the family, get close to the child. And this can happen inside a family, it can happen outside a family in a community. Even when parents are sexually assaulting children, the grooming can happen among siblings and other family members. So it's this time to gain trust. And, you know, I've done a bunch of work with sex offenders where I come to treatment groups or I go to prisons and I speak with them about how they do what they do so I can share it because mm -hmm. they're the experts, really. I mean, we learn from the books we read and from how we study this crime and from the researchers. And what they've told me is that typically they are grooming, building friendship with everyone around the child first. Yeah with the family, with the school, with neighbors, to be this perfect looking person, because if they can, and even with the kids' peers, even with their friends, because if they can gain trust from everyone, then it's seamless to gain the trust from the child. 
Okay, so, so it's important, I think, for parents to know that grooming happens to you, not just to the child. And so some of the signs, there's so many signs, we could talk all day about this. I think the best one really is your gut, mm. your intuition. It's something feels off, something feels wrong. Am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. I don't want to get this person in trouble. I don't want to falsely accuse. If something feels wrong, then listen, it doesn't mean we need to be accusing people and calling, you know, making a whole drama about it, but we, we need to intervene and do something. So your gut, the too good to be true feeling about someone that just something they're offering to babysit for free and fix your plumbing and they don't need anything back. Mm -hmm. So those are signs with adults where the adults are being groomed. Um, someone who insists on time alone with a child separating the child, you know, family members who say, I want to sleep over with your child, but I don't want you there, you know, insisting on separating, bringing kids away from their peers and away from other family members, showering children with gifts. And I don't mean, you know, grandparents at holidays, um, turning to a child for emotional and physical comfort. There's on and on. And mm -hmm. for teens, because we know, I know you talk about this, that a third to a half of all sex abuse is committed by youth. So signs in teens would be, if you know a 16-year-old, 15-year-old who is obsessed with being with children, younger children, rather than their peers, red flag. Yeah, yeah. You know, one more I think is important to, to mention is this obsession and pattern of constant touching beyond when a boundary has been set. Right. You say, we don't tickle in my family and the person keeps tickling and yeah. they push boundaries. So those are some of the signs. And I mean, we can talk all day about this. You know, parents often will ask, well, what's the difference between my me who's tickling my child and some of my family who's doing some of this and someone who's abusing? How do we know the difference? Mm -hmm. And just a really quick note about that is people who are abusing or grooming typically are leaving a trail of innuendos, of rumors, of accusations, of problems behind them. And people who are safe do not make tickling a secret and do not separate. And there's a whole different feel to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, and, I, and I, I'm with you. I can talk about yeah. this all day because I think um, you know, particularly, you know, I speak to, to parents who are survivors, the audience listening today is, is survivors. And there is this fear of like, am I being paranoid? Or am I, you know, is my intuition speaking to me? Because that's always the fear, right? Like you're overprotective. Um, it's, it's interesting, because I think, you know, one of the things that is really important is to create awareness of this issue and educate parents who are like, you know, that's never happened in my family. I would never do, you know, I, I can't imagine anyone, you know, that I know would ever do that. That happens to those people, not to, you know, my family. Um, and on my end, I have parents who are on the opposite end of the spectrum who are worried about everybody doing it because they've had the experience and they don't trust anyone. But at the same time, they have this fear of like, you know, like you said, accusing the wrong person or being overly paranoid um, and just not knowing how to trust their intuition. So knowing what signs to look for, um, I think is just so important so that they can, um, you know, see the signs and trust their intuition. Like if their intuition says something and then they, they look at the signs that they've been taught to look for and things are adding up in the wrong way, Right. Then exactly. you know, you know, that that's, that's where you need to be for sure paying attention to that gut instinct. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, between those two, right. To distinguish. And the truth is everyone is not abusing children. Right. Right. There are plenty of abusers. <laughs> we know that. And there's this issue is a pandemic, but everyone in your life is not abusing children. So we are here to help you distinguish between what is true, what are the signs and when things are safe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think education is just so critical in this, yeah. in this topic. One of the things that you brought up that I think is so uh, also quite important for parents to understand is that it isn't just adults. It can be youth, right? Peer on peer abuse. And it's important that we are aware of that so that we're not just like, oh, he's just going to a friend's house 
Um, I know the parents, I trust them, but yet we don't know if there's a sibling in the home and what you know uh, level of exposure they have to uh, online information that's maybe not supervised and what they have access to. And you know, there's just a, a number of ways that we may miss things because we aren't aware of the fact that um, youth is also, you know, a, a potential offenders, right, in these situations. So I think that's a really key point that parents need to be aware of that when they're looking for signs, it's not just adults and it's not just males. I know that that's another misconception, right? That it's it's exclusive. I know that the number for women or girls is much lower that are abusers, but it's still, you know, something to, to note and be aware of. So, um, yeah, when, you know, we teach parents that it's important to be, you know, that front line, right. And to, um, be proactive and, and it's not the child's responsibility to prevent abuse. If, if it does happen, um, what do you, say to parents whose children have been abused and then like, is there um, a strategy that they can implement at that point to uh, do things like boundary repair or, um, you know, I think a lot of parents feel like they've been defeated and, you know, now it's just therapy, but I feel like this education is still really important for them to, to teach their children and to strengthen their understanding of consent and all that, all of that. So what do you, um, you know, say to parents who have had this experience that their children have had this experience and what can they do now to empower their children? Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually doing a one hour workshop with Healing Out Loud next week for parents specifically who've had children who are abused, sexually abused. So I would say it's never too late and, and prevention is always necessary especially to prevent reoffense, because once children are sexually assaulted, sometimes they're more vulnerable to being abused in the future. Um, and, you know, my whole perspective of prevention is not just on teaching the kids. So if a parent has a child who's been sexually assaulted, it's so important for them to learn the information that we're talking about so they can build the and I call it a prevention team, people have different words for it, that they can be speaking with the play date parent before their child plays and goes on a play date. And they can be speaking with their family members and their schools and asking policies at school and, and putting prevention on their radar and having it as the culture of their home, not just with kids, but with all the adults around them. Um, I think for parents learning about sexual abuse prevention, grooming, all of this after a child's been abused really helps alleviate some of that guilt because when you learn about grooming, you learn how master how an abuser is a master manipulator and they're like con men or people. And so it can help alleviate that shame and that blame and that guilt that you did something wrong because you didn't do anything wrong. The only person at fault is the person who chose to offend. Yeah. So prevention, you know, sometimes it's so interesting you ask this, like, why should we teach parents who have had children who have been abused? I get the question all the time on the other side, like, why should I learn this? My child's fine. You know, yeah. and I'm saying, because you don't want to be that parent after. Yeah. It will help you after, but don't you want to do the work, your due diligence before? So you don't. Yeah. Have yeah, exactly. And and I think, um, you know, it's just this sort of denial that it could never happen to them. It has, you know, because it hasn't happened to them before. Um, and on on the other end, you know, for survivors, it's it's really the fear of being triggered by the information, too. Right. So unfortunately, both sides of the aisle are just not being proactive. And I think right. that, um, you know, if we really want to help solve this issue to, you know, keep children safe. Um, there is no alternative but to educate our, our kids at home and empower them. Um, what do you say, you know, I, I, I remember hearing this on an Instagram um, interview that you did with someone. And I thought, you know, that's, that's it right there. So I want to kind of um, set this question up for you, because I would love for you to share it. You had said something about, you know, being uncomfortable, right? Being uncomfortable having these conversations. It's either you're uncomfortable now or you're uncomfortable later. 
Can you share that? And because I just think that's so powerful for parents to understand. I, I used to, I remember like racking my brain of like, how do I get parents to see how important this is, you know? Um, and I know that as a survivor, it was definitely as I started doing the work of educating myself so I could teach my child, it was, it started to become triggering. But um, what I did at that point was say, okay, what do I need to do in order to complete this? Because I would start the education, teach myself, try to teach my child, get triggered, stop. Right. And it kind of went through this cycle where I would pause in between and think, okay, I think I've, you know, covered the basics. But then I realized that, you know, my child needed um, reinforcement of those, in, you know, of that information and they, they needed to um, have additional information uh, or additional ways of, of processing the information, whether it was a book or a video. And then I would get triggered to go, oh my God, like I still need to do this work and I would get back into it. But it was challenging. And, yeah. you know, so I, I have compassion for parents who struggle with this. Um, but it's still necessary to, to do. And what I did was I went to therapy to deal with my own stuff and my own healing so that I could continue on this journey. Um, my goal for me is to break the cycles, right? right? But I think for parents who don't prioritize this information or who shy away from it because they're afraid of what it's going to open up for them, what do you say to them? How, how do you um, express the urgency of this for them? Yeah. And I, I think you're so right that as a survivor, you know, for survivors, it's triggering and there's a whole set of other, you know, challenges to just teach prevention. So getting your own support is key to, to be able to do this. What I would say is I understand the feeling. I understand how hard and scary it is to think that this can happen in your family to your child from a family member, from someone else, um, that it's counterintuitive to want to want to teach this. And I would also say that denial is a molester's best friend. And what an offender, and I'm talking adults here, and older youth, it's what an, what an offender needs to offend. And I start every workshop that I do, because I do these workshops for parents by saying, are you will, we talk about the barriers to teaching prevention. It's uncomfortable, there's denial, and parents just don't have the language and the knowledge to do it. And around the discomfort, you might have been, I don't know exactly which statement I said, but probably something like, are you willing to feel a little uncomfortable? So your children never have to. Because when we turn our backs to this crime, kids pay the price. And, you know, children are children can and they do heal, but it interrupts their development. And it's our job to do our best. And so for survivors, we've already said that, you know, you need support. And for everybody needs support around this. Um, and I'll also say that, you know, I, this is part the part of my work that has really helped me inform how this crime works and share it with parents is that I sit with these guys and the women in women's prisons and learn that they want you to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. They, they want you to be so afraid of this so they can do what they do. And I also wanna say without getting, we can do hours of this other topic that there are many people who sexually abuse children who want to stop. It could be another show, another topic, and we don't need to go here, there, now, but, and, and I have that perspective because I sit in treatment groups of men who have served their time and are in intensive treatment. And they freely give me this information so parents can learn. The biggest thing that I can take away from them to tell parents is they tell me to tell you, be the helicopter parent. And of course, give your children freedom, but talk about these issues. Don't be afraid to talk about them. If you're you feel weird about someone, speak up, teach your children about secrets. They're the ones who could write these programs, Rosalia, because they know. Yeah. So I, yeah. Wow. I mean, well, first of all, I, I would love to do a show on that with you. So if you're game for that, I would absolutely love to um, have you back on to talk about that because I think that um, it's, a, it's also another aspect of how we can deal with this issue, right? For me, yeah. it's like, whatever it is that's going to help solve this, let's tackle that, right? So if that's part of the solution, let's talk about it. 
Um, but really quick about that, and we, and if you need to edit this part, you can, but we cannot stop this crime until we include helping perpetrators. And I know that can be triggering for survivors to hear. I know it. We, we both know there's so much vile hate for what people do to kids with good reason, but we truly can't understand this and stop it unless we help people who have these propensities. Yeah. And that's why I work, sit with them to understand yeah. that side of it. This episode is brought to you by Consent Parenting, my online platform for survivor parents to learn how to keep their kids safe from abuse. Did you know that children of survivor parents have a five times higher chance of being abused because survivor parents don't know or learn the tools needed to prevent abuse? They tend to overprotect instead of empower and prepare. You can change the statistics by becoming an educated parent. Get started by downloading my free guide, Seven Ways to Teach Your Kids About Body Safety, Boundaries, and Consent by going to aboutconsent.com forward slash guide. The link will be in the show notes to get your free copy today. Now let's get back to the show. So I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and, you know, talk about the, the current data that's available right now about the rates of abuse happening both online and offline through this pandemic, you know, uh, the rates have seemed to have increased and um, many parents are reaching out for support on what to do um, in terms of how to handle a disclosure if it were to happen, you know, because unfortunately the, these are realities that we now have to face is like, you know, as much as we're trying to do our best and we're educating our children, they, they are still quite, you know, especially if they're younger, maybe they're pre-verbal or they're just at the stage where we're just educating them now, but something happens um, and, and they have to disclose. What is your advice to parents um, for that so that uh, number one, the child won't be re-traumatized and so that if there is um, an ability for the child to speak and uh, share, you know, what happened to law enforcement and to organizations that can support them. Um, how can how can we support children in mm -hmm. a way that will help them heal and also um, bring that offender to become accountable um, in whatever format that ends up looking like? Yeah, that that's the challenging part. But I think, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing that I would say is to the person, if they disclose to me or whomever they disclose to is, I am so sorry that happened. And you didn't deserve that and your child didn't deserve that. And it is not your fault. And it is not your child's fault. And the only responsibility is ever on the person who abuses. And I think the greatest advice we can give is that believing children is where the healing begins. The moment a child discloses is the moment the healing can begin if they are responded to with, I believe you, I love you no matter what, I am here to help you. We allow them to tell what happened at their own pace instead of bombarding them with what next and what happened then. Um, to allow them to feel scared, mad, sad, allow them to behave normally because sometimes a child will tell and go back to their dolls to just to, to get support from a skilled um, therapist who works with trauma and um, sexual assault in particular, and to get yourself help so you can do your best to support your child, to report it, which I know can be triggering for people to hear, but we have to do that. Even though the system doesn't always work, we know that, and sometimes it does work. So, and we don't hear those success stories. Mm -hmm. Um, but there, there is a lot of support out there. That's what's different from the 80s. You know, there is so much support for children and for adults now um, to move through this and to heal. Yeah. But a child needs to be believed. When, they're, when someone says to a child, are you sure? Were you dreaming? Who have you told? Don't, this can embarrass. Don't tell anyone else. All of those ways of questioning, that response can hurt a child worse than the actual touch. You know that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And there, there's a couple of things there too, that I'd love to unpack, which is one that, you know, when, um, 
it, you know, even if a child is told, I believe you, but then they, uh, you know, that person is still allowed to be present in their lives, maybe not one-on-one, but is, you know, continues to be present in their life or they're, or they're told, you know, I believe you, but we're not going to like publicize this, right. We're not going to tell, like, don't tell anyone else about it. Um, that also creates shame. And I think uh, it's so important for, for, you know, I know so many survivors who have had that experience and they can, you know, even though their parents believe them, there was a sense of shame and something wrong that, that, you know, they had to keep that secret from others and was, was just as traumatizing um, as when the person themselves asked them to keep that secret. So I think it's, you know, really mimicking, it's mimicking what the offender has done and, and unknowingly, it's not, like we don't want to blame any parents who might be listening who have done that because the shame the shame around this crime is just immense. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the other um, aspect too that I I wanted to point out is I think a lot of parents don't realize because of the grooming process that children are really conflicted about coming forward because it's typically someone that they do care about that they love who has breached their trust and they may just give you a little bit of information to see how you respond before they actually tell you the whole thing. And based on your response, it's going to determine like what else they're going to, they're willing to share because they may not want to get that person in trouble. They may actually just want the situation to stop and hope that by, you know, speaking up, it's just going to stop. And that person can, can now be a part of their life, but without that hurtful part. Right. And so when um, we understand that about how children are, are, you know, perceiving the situation of someone that they cared about, that they trusted, that they loved, has now done something that they know is not right. Like that takes a lot for a child to reconcile and to figure out, you know, how to make sense of something like that, right? So I think um, having the right response is also healthy because um, what I have heard and maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I, my, my training and what I've learned is that when a child discloses and the parent says, you know, I'm going to kill that person or we're going to put them in jail. It will actually hinder them from uh, sharing more information about the, you know, what happened and potentially um, actually hinder an investigation. Have you found that to be uh, also true? A hundred percent. I mean, it makes no sense from a child's perspective to tell. I do an exercise about this in my workshops because they have heard for so long, usually. I mean, the threat to not tell is usually verbal, but it's also nonverbal. But the verbal part is, I will kill your family, I'll kill you, I won't love you, we won't be friends, we won't have money anymore, we'll have to move out, your doggy will get hurt, your friends won't understand, I'll say it was your idea, all of that manipulation, it makes no sense for them to tell. So, but it makes sense for us, that they tell and we need to teach them to tell, but we need to do the work by talking to the adults in their life. I always come back to that. Mm -hmm. But what's also so important for parents to understand is when children, we know most kids don't tell about sex abuse, but the truth is most of them try repeatedly. They try indirectly and kids don't typically come right out and say, mom, I'm being molested today. That's not how they do it. They drop hints. They show it through their affect, their behavior. They blurt statements out. And I love to share all these statements that kids blurt out from real situations where a parent, unless it's on your radar the way it is on yours, and I love watching all your videos because it's so on your radar that you can hear if a child is trying to tell because they, I I don't want to play those games with grandpa anymore. Typically it's your grandpa loves you. That's not nice. Go play with him versus... Tell me more. Why? What games? And these are the way that children try and tell. And so, yeah, they're hindered by the statements parents, people make around them and the threats that they hear from the abuser. The other aspect too is just also even um, if a a parent says something uh, really violent about the person that that child is disclosed about, right? It can can also scare a child into saying, well, I don't want you know, maybe it's someone who says, um, you know, I won't be able to give you those gifts anymore. We're not going to have that special playtime together. Um, that's not necessarily abuse, but is something that the child has come to enjoy. You know, I've heard so many right. survivors talk about, 
you know, I really enjoyed all this other time, but like sort of the, the sacrificial uh, aspect of the relationship was having to do this thing that I didn't want to do, but I then still got to have this other time with the person. And so kids will compartmentalize and have fear around what's going to happen to that adult um, if they absolutely got, you know, so. So in our prevention conversations, we need to tell kids if someone ever says, I'll hurt you or your family, that's not true. And you can still tell. I mean, all the things we know we can use in our prevention conversations. When a parent says, if anyone ever does that to you, I'll kill them in a prevention conversation, that's not helpful because kids take that literally. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I, that's what I think is so important about parents to understand is that they think that they need to have this like one conversation, you know, they, they, I, I've heard many parents say like, when do I have the talk or when, you know, it's usually around sex, sex education. Um, but they also realize like, when do I have to have this conversation about private parts and, you know, um, secrets and, and, and it's not one talk. Like, I just want to reiterate, cause I think you talk about this uh, at length that it has to be an ongoing conversation and in a way that is more empowering than, than scary. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think people have this perception that it's gonna be a scary conversation. Um, you and I both know that there's ways to, to not make it scary. So can you share a little bit about, um, you know, how we can empower kids? Like what are the kinds of conversations that parents should be having all the time? I think, I think looking, if this is on your radar is, constantly looking for those teachable moments. And the good news is young children hand them on silver platters, right? Yeah. So they're in the bathtub and they're wiggling their penises and they're poking their toes and vaginas and they're all over each other. There's your moment. Yeah. That's it. You don't, it's not an hour long conversation. It's, I, it looks like you two are touching each other's genitals or vaginas or vulvas or whatever word you're using. Remember, we don't touch each other's private parts. Here's your washcloth. Make sure you clean inside your anus and make sure you get behind your hair and, you know, in your ears and you move on. Yeah. And th those teachable moments, it's the culture of a home. Yes. Just like anything else, body safety is no different than please don't jump on the couch. Make sure you don't touch the stove because it's hot. We're wearing our seatbelt today. Here's your helmet. Those are the safety areas that are, you know, no brainer to focus on. Right. And body safety just gets woven in with the rest of it. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I love that you say that it has to be part of the culture of the home. And that's really just one aspect of it too, right? Um, I love that you talk about, and, and it, you, you might be the first person that I've heard really dive into this um, because I have always felt like as parents, you know, it really is our job to be the ones that are proactive, that are speaking up to other adults to say, this is what we're teaching in our home. We don't have, you know, we have a policy of no secrets and, and really being vocal. And I, I know that, you know, in some of the trainings that I've had, um, they talk about that, you know, they say, you know, parents should be uh, able to, to, you know, tell grandpa or whoever it is, you know, who's the caretaker, but I believe it really should be like, everyone and anyone that your child is in contact with. So whether that's the schools, you know, the teacher, the coaches, the babysitters, like, you know, uncle, grandpa, grandma, whoever it is, um, should be hearing from you that you are teaching this in your home. And I think a lot of people have fear that it's going to come off, um, you know, maybe offensive or people are going to get defensive. What do you say to parents who, you know, have those fears and, and how much should they be talking about it to those people in their child's life? I would say that it might happen. People might get defensive. They might be offended. And you have no control of that. You, the only thing you have control of is how you present it. And what I do in my workshops is I go through a series of, of scenarios, talking with play date parents, talking with camp counselors, talking with school officials, whomever it is in your child's life. And I agree with you, Rosalie, 100%. It's anyone that you drop your child off with and you drive away from. That's who you need to have the conversation because this can happen anywhere. So what I recommend is inviting the people in your life to be part of your prevention team. 
It is not an accusation. It is not a, conf confront a confronting conversation. It's saying, hey, we want you to be part of our family's team. This is how I'm raising my child. Are you on board with us? And, and we want you to help us. So to grandpa, hey dad, you know, Sammy, we don't, he doesn't want to be tickled right now. He has, the, he has the right to choose if he wants a hug or a kiss, all of that, all of that consent stuff. And this is why, instead of just saying, you can't hug my kid, which is sometimes how parents will leave this information. I don't know if your, your um, clients do that, but I know when sometimes when parents come to my workshops, they practice this because we role play it out in the workshop. And then they leave and they're so nervous that they go home and say, you can never touch my child again. And that's not the message. Right. The message is, hey, dad, will you help us keep Lily safe? And you can do it by asking her if she wants to sit in your lap. And if she says no, say, okay, great. I'm so glad you said no. And training your family members how to have the same language that you're using. I also, I'm gonna just show you since you asked that question really quick. I designed these cards that help parents get these conversations started. And it's basically, will you join our family's prevention team? And there's 25 cards that go to 25 different caregivers. And the front of the card has the body safety rules. The back of the card has facts about child sex abuse and um, the ask that you're asking. And I bring these to the sex offender treatment groups. Hmm. And I hand them out to the men and say, what would you have done if, if a parent would have given you this card and discussed this before you touch this child? And most of them tell me they would run for the hills. Yeah, I'm out of there. I don't want, you know, and I, we can do a whole show on grooming and the, and the quotes, but it's about inviting people to be part of this with you. I love what you're doing with consent letters. That's what it's all about. It's, hey, these are our boundaries. Are you on board? Get an explicit yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and I was going to say, um, when I had created the consent letters, actually, the first one that I created was the medical one uh -huh. um, because of the Larry Nassar case. Yeah. And that was actually what inspired me to create that one. And then I thought, why stop at just doctors? Let's, you know, teachers and babysitters and coaches and parents and, you know, family members. So it, it ended up... Um, expanding from there. And then when I uh, came across your work, I realized that you had those cards, which was fantastic because it also has additional information on the statistics that people don't know. So you're really helping to educate the public about, you know, what the real numbers are of these situations and, and this issue. So I, I love the fact that you have those cards and, and to your point of what you said about, you know, when you went to these prisons and showed these to these offenders, like their response was, I'd run for the hills because they ultimately want the easiest target, right? They are looking for uh, children that it's gonna, it's not gonna be um, hard to to be able to manipulate them because they're uneducated, right? And if a parent is going, here's what we're doing with our family, it's a red flag to a potential um, right. offender, to a potential predator. So yeah, the, the abuser outside the home is looking for the parent who is not teaching this who doesn't have it on their radar, who is too uncomfortable, or who does have it on their radar and won't speak up. And this is such an important point, I'm just gonna squeeze this in, is that you know we focus prevention in this country on kids. And I started that way, that was how I learned. And children need to learn prevention. But we teach kids, say no, tell, speak up. Um, no one's allowed to touch your private parts. All of this great information, but if adults see the grooming behaviors that are preceding touch and we feel yucky and we're seeing what we're seeing and we don't say anything, how can we expect a five-year-old yeah. to look yeah. up to their uncle and say, don't touch me when the adult just saw something and they don't speak up? That's what offenders want from parents. Yeah. Including exactly. incest, including within the family. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and I think it's also quite interesting when we talk about, um, you know, the, the perspective that offenders have um, of, you know, what the easy targets are. Um, they're also hoping that, you know, just to kind of actually bring it back a little bit, I wanted to make a point earlier when we were talking about grooming and the strategies that um, a, a person offending would, would do to gain that trust. 
um, is that they are grooming even the community at large, right? I, I've, you know, I'm currently reading um, some books, talk, you know, where they're uh, interviews with these um, offenders, and they talk about how they, you know, they made their appearance in their communities so squeaky clean mm -hmm. that people just would not believe that mm -hmm. that would happen. And even when a child did speak up, they were not believed. And that just gave the, you know, person offending even more yep. um, audacity, right? To say, you know, they, they spoke up, nobody believed them. I've done a, such a good job at being the sheep in wolf's, you know, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing that, you know, I can keep doing this because I'm not going to get caught. So it's really important that when we are learning about grooming, that we take these, these things seriously um, of seeing a sign and not just saying, maybe I'm just, you know, that I couldn't possibly imagine that that person would do something yeah. like that. Yeah. Do we, do you, do we have time? I don't know if we have time. Um, would it be helpful? I have a journal right here from a sex offender. Yeah, that I could, for sure. That I could just share a couple of the points. This was a school actually that I worked, that I was doing my program in many years ago with a man who worked there for 18 years and he was a beloved teacher and he was caught with um, 10,000 plus images of por child porn is what it was called then with sexually abusive imagery on his computer. Wow. And they, they, this, this journal is made public and I study it over and over and over. So there's just what he, sh what he writes in here shows how he's looking for the resistance from the child but also from the adult. And that's the part that I really am passionate about learning is how they're looking for it from, from us because mm -hmm. it's not kids. So just a couple of, I'm gonna put these on, a couple of the things he says here. Um, so he says, after school, and it's minor number one, so it's not a child's name, um, hanging out with me and I willed her into my lap for about a minute gave her a quick shoulder rub. She was relaxed. I'm finally getting the trust. Mm -hmm. Parents are divorced, separated, so trust might be an issue. Minor number three, gave, I gave her a bunch of squeezes. She still doesn't like that. She resists. When can I ever get a full hug? Um, Minor number three, some love, but she kind of resisted again. Right, that's kind of the same. He, he repeated that. Let me give you one from a parent. So he says, it's been an interesting day. Started out bad. I ran into a parent of minor number five. She gave me a ho-hum greeting. And I started to worry about that because I have a good friendship with minor number five. And I think she's always been cute. I better be more careful around the parent. And it goes on and on and on and on, Rosalia. Wow. I mean, I have pages of it, of how the parent gave him a funny look. And he said, I better, you know, I better watch out. And, and it just goes on and on. And so it, I think it comes back to trust your belly. And this school had been trained. I had trained them countless times, but they were stuck and I'm not blaming them at all. They're a great organization but they're stuck in the belief that this is our friend. This is somebody, our colleague that couldn't yeah. do this. So what we have to come back to are the behaviors. Right. A teacher should not have a child in their lap, tickling, squeezing, kissing, and touching, period. Right. Yeah. That's uh, that. Uh, those are the signs that parents, um, you know, need to pay attention to, right? Is that, that sense in their gut even if they are, you know, this is, I think, where incest in particular is just so rampant because one parent refuses to believe that possibility. And it's not to say, you know, become paranoid of your partner. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. to say, educate your child, be vigilant, look for the signs. Um, if something, you know, the hairs on your, the back of your neck stand up, pay attention to that. Right. So I, you know, completely uh, agree that that's, that's just, 
the first sort of um, line of defense that we have as parents to, to pay attention to that, to listen to our intuition and to teach our children to listen to their intuition. Um, you know, when I teach this also, I make sure that parents are educating their children on how to listen to their bodies and what that, uh, you know, ultimately is your gut feeling, right? So intuition right. to me is just a fancy way of saying like, listen to your gut um, because we have to, listen to it ourselves, but also teach our children to do that as well. Nurture their gut instincts. So when a child says, I'm afraid of the thunder, instead of saying there's nothing to be afraid of, brainstorm, okay, how can we go get safe, right? Or there's a monster under the bed. No, there's not that silly. Well, let's go look at the monster. So there's just these small ways that we can nurture that, that gut feeling or intuition. Yeah, yeah I love that. <clears throat> yeah. um, I wanted to um, ask you what um, you know, one of the lessons I wanted to, to touch on is that what do you say to parents who don't want to look at their family members and just, you know, it's like, there's no way that my family could be, even if they have that gut feeling, it's like just so outside of their scope of belief. Um, is there a way to kind of break through that? Because I mean, I think that I've seen that over and over again, where it is the spouse, or if they're separated, the, you know, it's, it's happening when the child goes and visits, um, but they they just either don't have a way to um, prove it because they don't, you know, their child maybe is just too young to share it, but they have a sense like that. I've had so many parents reach out to me to say like, it's it's my my own father. And I just, I can't see that they would do that. Like they didn't do it to me. So therefore I can't see how they could do that to my child. What do you say to people who are just in disbelief? I think, I mean, I would ask you the same question. Help me figure this out. I get the same thing all the time. <clears throat> I think I would brainstorm with them. What are the signs that you're seeing? Like if they're concerned. For someone generally who would just say this would never happen, there's no way my family would do this. I just keep coming back to that denial or, or not being willing to entertain that it could happen anywhere, bringing your child to a family without talking about it sets up the scenario that it can. Yeah. We yeah. don't know people's backgrounds. We don't know private lives. And, you know, Rosalie, I've been doing this for three decades and it, that is still a daily issue. It's one of the biggest dynamics of this crime. Yeah. Is that yeah. It's just so hard to face that somebody would behave this way. Yeah, um, and that's what they're counting on. Right, and I would say learn about it if you're willing to learn, go to your material, go to mine, go to all the people doing it. Um, and you know, sibling incest is, is very under-researched and the research is dated, but the dated research from David Finkelhor, which is one of the top researchers, states that sibling incest is five times more likely than parent-child. I mean, parent-child's already high enough, yeah. but Parents often will see sibling touch as exploration, and some of it is, and some of it is within normal bounds, but much of it is not. It yeah. is crossing the boundary, and it is a violation, and so I don't know how we break through, you know, that barrier all the time, except to just keep sharing the facts. Yeah, I think I agree with you. It's, it's, it's daunting, and, I, you know, as you're saying that and talking, um, I think what's really you know, could be really helpful for parents is to get support, to not feel shame about the, um, you know, this, this possible inkling that they have, or this, you know, intuition or gut feeling that they have and to get support and not just to like, hold on to it yourself and, you know, figure it out on your own. I think these are the kinds of situations where you need to talk to someone. Yes. I think there's also a fear of saying like, if I tell someone, then they, I'm going to get investigated and then I may lose my, you know, access to my child. I think that that's one of the biggest fears too, of why people don't reach out. But, you know, I kind of want to go back to what you said before. It's like, I would rather be uncomfortable myself with dealing with the issue than to put my child in a position where they're in danger and they're right. uncomfortable because I wasn't willing to be uncomfortable. Right. Um, because I, I had a, a situation not too long ago where um, the person contacted me and had the suspicion that the father, um, the grandfather was, um, who was a caretaker was doing something and had these, you know, really 
some red flags it, to me immediately were like, these are red flags. And they had just started learning about uh, abuse prevention. So they said, I, I'm not really sure if that's right. Like, maybe it's not, maybe it is. My gut feeling tells me that something's going on, but it's my dad. And, you know, they never did anything to me. Um, and so, you know, I said, let's, let's, you know, put the clues together, right? Let's, let's figure out what this, these pieces of the puzzle mean. And ultimately, um, that person went and spoke to another trusted family member to say, I think this could be happening. And that person gaslit her and basically said, like, how can you say that about, you know, like, basically the patriarch of our family, like, that's like, you know, and, and made her really have a lot of doubt about it. Yes. Um, and so that's unfortunate, too. And if you I think if you hit that, I, I would encourage any parent listening to get a second opinion. You know, it's kind of like the doctor, keep asking, you know, keep, because again, listening to that gut, even if you think that couldn't possibly happen, like that person never did anything to me and I'm the, you know, their Mm -hmm. child, how could they be doing it to my child? Um, So here's the thing we, we teach children in prevention programs, tell and tell and tell and tell until someone believes you. How can we expect a child to keep doing that if they don't get believed when an adult goes and tells they get gaslit and they don't want to say a word again. Yeah. Right. And if you have a gut feeling about your father, about the neighbor, about whoever it is, because you're something, your body is responding, it's not responding to this person and that person, but it is to this one. There's a reason. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're a pedophile, but it means follow those clues, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we, we definitely um, talked about this particular topic. I I had some other questions and I think we're going to have to do a second uh, interview (laughs) because there's so much more to dive into. Um, And again, I really value, um, you know, all of the experience and wisdom that you bring to these conversations because there's so much that people just don't know and it's easy to feel overwhelmed. So I just want to put the caveat in there that it doesn't have to be overwhelming and you don't have to do all of this at once but you do have to get started. Um, And so I I wanted to wrap it up with asking you um, to share uh, about what programs you have this year that you're offering. How can people connect with your work? How can they learn from you so that they can empower their families? Thank you. So I, my, my program, my business, my workshop is called Parenting Safe Children and um, it's parentingsafechildren.com. And I, typically do live workshops um, with lots of people. I live in, in Boulder County in Boulder, Colorado, and all my workshops are usually, you know, in schools and churches, but they're not anymore right now. And so the silver lining of it is I'm doing them via Zoom regularly, which is so awesome because I'm having people from Afghanistan and Canada and Australia and all over the world come. So my next one is January 23rd and 30th, um, done in two parts, two hours each time, can register at my website, parentingsafechildren.com. If you can't come live, I do have a pre-recorded one that was recorded, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. Still the same information, but I'm always updating. Um, the pre-recorded does not include questions and answers in practice, the live one does. Um, I also have my book off limits here and the cards on my website and yeah. And Instagram, you're Facebook. you're on Instagram now. Yes, I, I was going to say I see that you're active. <laughs> I'm it's, trying. You know the 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 platforms are always changing. So even for myself, it's like I'm always trying to figure out. You know, and and there's unfortunately I was I was just talking to someone else. There's unfortunately a little bit of um, I think uh, shadow banning that's happening. Like Instagram is is not being very nice to accounts that talk about. Um, either sex positivity or sex education, um, which is part of abuse prevention education. Um, And so, you know, it's a challenging space. So don't feel like, you know, (laughs) um, you're you're doing great. You're helping to get the word out. And I know that there are parents who are grateful to you. So I I will put all of those links in the show note uh, to both your workshops, your website, um, and also how they can um, get access to the cards and the book um, and to start following you on Instagram so that they can- there because I know that you do uh, some lives with other, um, you know, uh, other accounts and other platforms so people can connect with you there as well. Um, so thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate you and the work that you're continuing to do. I, we're champions in this space together. Um, and I look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do to keep kids safe.
Yeah. So listeners, uh, if you loved this episode and uh, maybe love is not the, the best word, but you were highly impacted by this and you learned something, please tag us, uh, take a screenshot and tag us in your stories on Instagram. Uh, let us know what your biggest takeaway was and how you are going to take action, because that's really what it's about. You know, we can talk about this all day and get the information, but if we're not putting it in, into practice, we're not actually empowering our families. So be sure to take action. Let us know how you're going to do that and tag us in your stories. We look forward to connecting with you there. And until next time, I'm Rosalia Rivera for About Consent. Talk to you soon. Don't miss the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And I would be so grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes so that others can also find this information. I will be shouting you out and thanking you on the next episode. If you found this useful, be sure to share it with others as well. Let's continue to create consent culture one conversation at a time. Stay empowered.